Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 21st of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. What do we know about the public services card? Well, we know it was introduced to clamp down on social welfare fraud. We know too that Minister Regina Doherty said it would be mandatory to get a driving licence, a passport, a student grant or for engaging with revenue and other public services. Mandatory, she said, but not obligatory. We know that the UN Special Rapporteur in Extreme Poverty, Philip Alston, said the introduction of the card without a clear legal basis could have huge potential consequences for future governance. We know that the Irish Council for Civil Liberties and Digital Rights Ireland have been consistently warning Regina Doherty and her department that the card is in breach of EU data laws. The concern has been that this was intended uh, to introduce a national identity card by the back door. Opposition parties say Regina Doherty has failed to answer their questions about the card. The card has now been found to be illegal. The Data Protection Commissioners says the card should never have been used for any purpose other than receiving social welfare payments. Helen Dixon also said that the data collected on 3.2 million people must be deleted. The illegal storing of private data could give cause to legal action against the state. So what's the most remarkable part of this story so far? Is it that the government has failed to say it is seeking its own legal advice on the data commissioner's report? Is it that Regina Doherty has failed to make any comment on the findings of the report? Is it that the Minister has declined to say if she will still publish the report? Or is it that Regina Doherty continues in her office as Minister, despite the ham-fisted way she tried to roll this out? No. Well, yes, maybe. But no, the most remarkable part of this debacle today is on the front page of the Irish Examiner which reports that the Public Expenditure Minister, Pascal Dunhue was briefed on an interim report of an investigation by the Data Protection Commissioner into the Public Services Card a year ago. Let's talk about this with Thomas Byrne, Fidafall TD in Meath And a very good morning to you, Thomas Byrne. As I think uh, we've highlighted this morning, it has been a remarkable story, as most people would know so far. It gets all the more remarkable today because the briefing that the Minister got a year ago was identical in terms of the findings in the interim report to those that were published last Friday. Well, as I understand it, Minister Regina Doherty got the same interim report, so she had it, Pascal Dunahoo had it, 
Uh, I mean, this whole thing is unforgivable, really. And I think it is absolutely extraordinary that the government and ministers, local ministers, won't comment uh, on this uh, one way or the well, other. Well, the reason the minister, uh, Pascal Dunhu, that is, says he didn't comment a year ago uh, was because it went to the department that oversees this, the Department of Public Protection or of Social Protection, uh, the uh, same department that Regina Doherty is the minister in. Yeah, and but it's remarkable that nobody thought to do anything about this last year and that nobody has come out this week and said, yes, we're accepting the findings of the Data Protection Commissioner. I mean, one of the findings is that there are two particular jobs that have to be done within 21 days. Now, we've heard nothing. It's almost a week uh, now at this point. And we've heard nothing from Regina Doherty about this whatsoever. Is she now going to instruct other departments to stop using the public services card? Uh, are they going to do what's required of the Data Protection Commissioner? And then are they going to come up with a plan to implement this decision within six weeks? That's what the Data Protection Commissioner requires. Well, Helen Dixon and will take the government to court if she doesn't. Look, I mean, that's an extraordinary... Unbelievable. ...to be. Unbelievable. I mean, you you, you, you appoint these authorities, you make laws, Mm. and you accept the decisions that they've made. I I, I just think it's extraordinary. I mean, we live in a society governed by laws. We don't uh, live in a society governed by the whims of Finnegan ministers. They must comply with the law. Are you you surprised that one of them is still a minister? Are you surprised that Regina Doherty continues to be a minister? Well, look, I know you're going to lead me down that path and I'm more than happy to answer questions about it. Look, there's a procedure there. If, if Fianna Fáil decides that a minister has to go, then a minister has to go. So we don't just make those decisions over the airwaves or within days um, of, of particular issues arising. So, look... OK, without giving us the party position... Without giving us the party position, what's your own personal opinion on a, a minister who continues in office after uh, rolling out something uh, so significant that um, it turns out to be illegal and could end up in uh, the state being sued by 3.2 million people or thereabouts. Well, look, to be quite honest, Michael, I mean, I hope come next February or whenever the general election is that Regina Doherty, Helen McNatee, the whole lot of them will be out of office because I think this is this is just going on too much. What I want Regina Doherty to do today, and she should have done this when this was published, mm. and in fact she should have done it when she got the interim report last year, is implement the findings. Do what the law requires the government to do and stop wasting more taxpayers' money on this and stop exposing the taxpayer to more liability in front of this. If anybody can show that they were damaged by this decision, they would have a compensation claim without any doubt under GDPR. Mm. People who had to pay lawyers to apply for passports or even in some cases lawyers to apply for driver's licences. I certainly have a constituent who had to employ uh, uh, and pay for experts to help the passport application because they couldn't get a public services card until I demanded one from the the Department of Social Protection to get a passport. Now he's no longer required. In fact, he was never required. Mm. And in fact, when this whole issue arose, Minister Doherty would have known this in her department and yet constituents of hers were put to extra cost and extra expense because of this requirement and because she sat back and did nothing with those constituents undoubtedly, if they've suffered damage. Oh, no, 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 I think you're being far too fair to the Minister. It's not that she sat back and did nothing. She oversaw this being implemented and the way that it was being implemented. There's, there's no doubt about that. And mm. as did uh, Leo Varadkar before her as Minister for Social Protection, as did Pascal Dunahoo. And as she said everybody cabinet. was wrong. That the advice she was getting from her officials was correct and that everybody else was wrong, uh, that uh, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties were wrong, that uh, the uh, UN Special Rapporteur was wrong, that Digital Rights Ireland were wrong, that uh, the questions uh, that were being asked of her by yourself and others uh, were not relevant because this was totally legal, that it was underpinned by legislation which was approved by the Dáil. 
Look, I mean, Minister Doherty said that I'm wrong about stuffing the doll on other issues, and I wasn't wrong. Uh, the whole sex abuse in schools, we had a thing where the government went on for years that everybody was wrong, lawyers were wrong, penal faulty, these were wrong, and then we found out it's going to cost the government a huge amount of money because, of course, they were wrong. Um, this is completely wrong, and they really, the most important thing is that they stop it today or last Friday or last year, whenever they got the report, they haven't done it yet, and they discontinue what they've been doing. It's completely wrong, and it's illegal, has no basis in law, and I just don't think there's an understanding there of mm. of data protection. But I mean, by the way, we, see, we the all talk about GDPR. This is mm. all done under yeah. previous data protection yeah. legislation. Mm-hmm. This is basic, basic data protection law. You don't need to complicate it in any way. And it's not just that the minister made a mistake. It's that she made a mistake and was being told very clearly by people who have great understanding of these matters that it was not just wrong, but that it was illegal, that it was in breach of EU data laws. And she said, no, you're wrong. So, I mean, there really are questions uh, about uh, how tenable her role is. Well, not only that it was in breach of EU law, it's in breach of Irish, basic Irish law, but also that, in fact, there was no legal basis whatsoever. There just was no law there to allow the minister to do this and to allow the department to do this, and that includes uh, Leo Varadkar before this. Uh, But we saw that Leo Varadkar before this wanted to further his leadership ambitions by having this campaign against uh, alleged social welfare. Well, there is is law, just to be clear on that, there is law which was enacted by the Oireachtas, but that allows for the car to be used for the purposes of making welfare uh, claims. Oh, no, absolutely. Sorry, that's the point yeah, I'm making. Yeah, There's yeah, no yeah, legal yeah. basis whatsoever for the use of the public mm. sector care, public services care for mm. other departments. Yeah. That, that's mm. the problem, and that's what the Data Protection mm. Commissioner has identified. Mm. Mm. That's the problem. By the way, the Data Protection Commissioner is also investigating other issues uh, relating to this particular card that, they have, that the Data Protection Commissioner hasn't come down on yet. The biometric whole data. Of, yeah, mm. and, and the Minister, I think, has shown a complete lack of understanding of what exactly is biometric data. I mean, a photograph of you contains mm. uh, biometric data, for example. So there's a whole lot more to go on this. I think the best way to save uh, the taxpayer and citizens of Ireland money is to implement the decision. And and Uh, it seems as though Helen Dixon has made up her her mind to some degree on this and that it is using biometric data and she said as much at a a private function overseas not too long ago, at least that's a claim that was being made by the Irish Council of Civil Liberties. Well, look, I, I'm, I'm happy to await the Data Protection Commissioner's actual decision on that. And I think that that's probably the best way to deal with these things and to make sure they're, they're, they're bulletproof. But the only thing as well is that we are now, you know, obviously very conscious of data protection against companies, social media, against, you know, bodies that you dealt with, banks, all mm. sorts of people would be first out the door giving out if there was a data protection breach would be headlines in the nine o'clock news if it was any breach by any bank or any other private body. This is the state. This is our government that we elect. Mm. Uh, the people who are actually supposed to, they're part of the same state that the Data Protection Commissioner is part of, different functions. So if they're not complying, if the Department of Social Protection, the Minister of Public Expenditure, mm-hmm. the Taoiseach, doesn't see fit to comply with the laws, how on earth can we be scandalised uh, or outraged when a bank or a private sector body or a social media giant breaches data protection. We can't if we if we allow this to continue. We or, must or, or how can we as government how, as a state? How can we be outraged when we turn a blind eye to it? And uh, you said a, a moment ago, Thomas Byrne, you knew the line was going to take you down, and uh, I'll be as predictable as that. And we'll go down that line now because uh, you've been giving out uh, about this, uh, but it really is part of the government that is supported by Fianna Fáil uh, and once again Fianna Fáil is tut-tutting, huffing and puffing and marching up the hill. 
Well, first of all, what I've, what I've done here, Michael, is to outline what needs to happen and what the Minister needs to actually do. So it's more than tutting. She needs to implement a decision. It's very clearly written down in the Data Protection Commissioner's statement. We don't have a full report, by the way, so the Minister needs to publish that. Mm. But there is there are items that she has to do. So she has to do those things. And by the way, some of them are within 21 days. Some of them are within six weeks. They have to happen. That's the first thing. And what if the Secondly, Taoiseach uh, is right in saying that this could be solved by introducing amending legislation? Well, They've, they've never thought of doing that. And, mm. and that's, that's not entirely clear either whether that's possible within the time, you know, how, how, how long that would take. And they haven't certainly haven't spoken to Fianna Fáil about this, as, as I understand would it. Would you object to um, that? Which, which they have to do. Well, we'd consider anything at all. But the point is, it is a, there's a decision uh, that has to be implemented. So you don't, you don't mind the idea of having a public service card in order to get a passport? I, 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 I'm, I'm not saying that at all. I mean, mm. clearly... That's what he means when he's talking about clearly, amending Well, legislation he has said that. Like, but, he, you know, if he's serious with that, he has to talk he has to talk to other parties in the doll, And it is not acceptable to sit in a report for over a year mm. uh, putting uh, the state in liability. The state will be in liability and do nothing about it. Now, there's, I would say very little chance, I think, of any legislation being passed uh, this side of a general election, um, the way things are. I mean, the doll doesn't mm. come back for almost another month. There'll be a lot of things to do uh, with Brexit as well. So I think the safest course is actually for the government to implement this decision. And as regards ministers' jobs, I said it's going to be an election and we're going to be campaigning to replace them. Mm. Um, but the point as well is that this is, this is, this is a... Oh, no, but surely there's a, an element of accountability. And, uh, uh, you, of course you, there is. You've course always course said that, that Fianna Fáil's role in supporting this government is to make them accountable. Yeah, and the first, bit, the first item of accountability is to go on your local radio show. I mean, that's the first thing, that you, you go in there and you listen. You, 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 you well, I don't think Minister Doherty has been on this radio show since February. I could be wrong on that, but uh, as best I know. I, I, I don't know what to say about that, Michael. I mean, Michael, practically every other politician of all parties would mm. be happy to go uh, on your radio programme, uh, answer the questions, because at the end of the day, the people listening to this show are the people who vote for us. And that's the, to me, that's the first place for accountability. Second, of course, is national media. And obviously, the doll you're accountable there. And if someone has to resign, and by the way, Michael, this has happened twice in the course of this government mm. where ministers have to resign. So I, I'm not, when I, when I refuse to discuss this on your show with particular mm. ministers, it's not that we don't want it to happen or anything. It's just, it's just that we don't think it's a proper place and it's happened before but the first thing is accountability that people answer that people explain and the, the one thing that's completely wrong about the government's attitude in terms of they saying they're considering the report in the statement that the Minister Doherty and her department issued in, uh, when this was published she was very quickly able to outline the circumstances where the Data Protection Commissioner, com, com, Data Protection Commissioner said uh, that the PSE card could be used. So they said, yeah. oh, but by the way, the Data Protection Commissioner said we could use in these circumstances, in other words, within the Department of Social Protection. Yeah. That's fine. But they, they, they had no comment whatsoever on the, on the big issue, which is where the Data Protection Commissioner said uh, where, where, where it couldn't be used. Well, I, 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 think, I think to be fair to Regina Doherty as well, it has to be said that uh, the Minister isn't making any comment on the findings of... Friday's report anywhere, and understandably sorry, so. Because Mike, sorry, Michael. They, they, can I, sorry, that's the point I making. They have commented actually on the positive ones because if you look at the statement the department no, uh, department mm. has issued, they actually state, "Oh, by the way, the the DP, the data protection commissioner allows us to use the public services card in these circumstances." Okay, but but when the minister when, when when the minister was at, I heard her on RTE last week, uh, and when she was asked about it, uh, she was saying that she needed to consider it, which I thought, you know, was understandable in that you know she's a minister minister who's rolled out something that's illegal and could have uh, significant consequences uh, for the state and could end up being significantly costly for the state apart from the 60 million that has already been wasted on this. 
But anyway, um, that, that, that's the position that she has taken uh, as things stand. Uh, but as we go into the new doll term, uh, we could find ourselves, because of the tight time frame on this, that an enforcement order will be put on it, and this could be before the courts. What will Fianna Fáil's position be under such a scenario? Well, look, they're in government. Unfortunately, they've got more votes and more seats the last time. We're hoping to change that. So if, if this goes to court, that would be their responsibility. But I don't think the public will put up with that. And I think there'll be a huge backlash if they go to court on this. Um, I think it would cost huge amounts of money in terms of uh, what the government would have to pay. And by the way, the government government would be paying one set of legal fees, the government would be paying the other set of legal fees because the Data Protection Commission... Of course, in other words, all of us who got out of bed to go to work this morning... Exactly. ...will be paying would, would, ...paying legal, it doesn't matter who wins or who loses the yeah. case, we'd be paying it. So at the end of the day, we have an authority set up, uh, and the idea that a state body, or sorry, the government department goes after a state body in court because they don't like its decision, uh, I, I, I think is completely wrong. I just, I just I can't get my head around and, it. And, and what has to happen before Fianna Fáil takes a position on this? Like, well, sorry, sh- the, position, sh- the position you're asking me to take is for the Minister to resign. I've taken numerous positions, which is that the mm. Minister must implement the decision, the Minister must actually go ahead and do this, the Minister must and actually bring mm. this to the court. So that's Fianna Fáil's position. We're not in government. We don't actually make those decisions and we can hold them accountable and we do that. Uh, and we'll, we'll certainly hold ourselves accountable at the general election. There's no question about that. Are they red lines though? Because Sinn Féin is going to introduce a, a motion of confidence or no confidence against the Minister. Well, they only bring in motions of no confidence when they hear that we're not going to support them. If they thought we were going to support them, they wouldn't bring them in. Let's be honest about it. They've been really cynical about this. Look, the, the, this, this government will be out of office. But you don't have red lines. Is that what you're saying, then? Well, red lines in what? We're not negotiating at the moment. We're, 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 we're sitting back because Brexit is happening, waiting for a general election. We're yes, allowing but you said a few, a few moments ago, this must happen and that must happen. If these things don't happen, are they red lines or not? Uh, because that's basically what the word must means, that it must happen. Yeah, the, the, we're not in the business of putting out red lines, etc., because it takes on a different context then when I say that. So I think it's more important that we set out what, what we think should happen, what we think the government should do. And I think the first thing is that the government, the Minister Doherty, would come on uh, the media, local radio, national radio, television, and explain this particular decision. She failed to explain her department's attitude and failed to do that. Um, the motions of confidence now mean absolutely nothing. The two ministers who did resign, there was no... The, 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 you know, at the end of the day, Francis Sher resigned conversation between Michal Martin and uh, Leo Varadkar and Dennis Nocton resigned as well in different circumstances. So did these things happen? Um, but they never happen on a Sinn Féin motion of confidence. So look, I mean, that's not certainly going to be part of our agenda. We're going to be very careful about this, as we always have been on every single issue. Mm, okay. uh, on this. Just, just to conclude, because I am over time, you've, you've called on Regina Doherty now to make statements sooner rather than later. What about Pascal Donoghue? Uh, do you want to hear from him as well? Well, of course. I mean, if he was aware of it as well, he's the Minister for Public Expenditure. He's the person who looks after the the, the money that the state has and, in fact, is, is uh, has data protection functions as well within the government and, and IT functions as well. So, yes, he does need to answer, as does Taoiseach as well. I mean, the Taoiseach has commented briefly about it, but, you know, he was Minister for Social Protection as well uh, when this was brought in. And the, the problem I have is that we, we should be, as, as a state, as citizens, able to rely on the advice... Uh, that that governments have. We don't know what the advice was here, but 
whether they followed the advice or didn't follow the advice, they did the wrong thing. And it's not the first time that's happened recent times, which I outlined the example of the Department of Education as well, where they, you know, they, they, they just kept doing the wrong thing despite everyone else saying uh, they were wrong. Um, and, and, and I am worried about that because citizens really need to be able to depend uh, on, on their government to do the right thing. And I think with data protection, the biggest problem is that a lot of people just don't get it and don't get uh, that you cannot process data or, or deal with data or hold on to people's information maybe like happened before and that okay. there's, a, there's a huge change over the last 20 years in fact but I suppose it's only coming it's only becoming much more um, out there in the public mind now about how important your data is that your phone number your email address is owned by you uh, and nobody else or your mm-hmm. utility bill is not owned by the Department of Social Protection uh, your public services card is not something that can be uh, required without laws being made okay. and I think the understanding just isn't there Alright Thomas Byrne thank you indeed for joining us this morning Thomas Byrne Fianna Fáil TD in Mead East Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, the bad news, as you've been hearing uh, this week, is uh, the cost of renting somewhere to live continues uh, to rise. The good news is uh, that it's not rising at anywhere near the rate that it had been. But the really bad news is that the cost of renting is through the roof, over €1,200 on average in Louth, over 1300 on average in Meath, and over €2,000 on average in Dublin. One of the reasons for this, they say, is that there's not enough properties to rent. Let's talk about this with Margaret McCormick, who's spokesperson for the Irish Property Owners Association. Good morning to you, Margaret, and thanks for joining us. And you've uh, some pretty shocking figures, actually, in terms of the number of landlords that are in the market compared to those who once were. Uh, we do indeed. Now, I, I, I was just say that, that the draft report deals with new rents, not existing rents, and people in existing accommodation would be paying uh, substantially lower than that because normally a landlord will reward a good tenant and w- won't increase the rent um, at the same rate as the market rent. Mm. Um, but it, it, the, the shocking figures, as you said, is that we know that 40,000 landlords have left the sector since 2012. Why That's is that a shocking number of people, mm. yeah. of landlords. And we know in the last two years, in the, the RTB's annual report shows that there's uh, nearly 12,500 less tenancies now than there was in 16, in, in 18, at the end of 18, than there was in 16. So we're losing landlords from the sector. Um, and you, you, would, you would look and you'd say, well, hold on, rents are high. So, so th- you know, that doesn't make it make sense. But the problem for, for the sector is that uh, the tax treatment is out of kilter with with the situation. I mean, that there's a huge problem with the tax treatment. It is very difficult to understand uh, that it's not profitable enough or that uh, people are, are, are doing it at a, a loss or whatever the case is, that uh, there aren't the incentives there to rent out, given that it costs over 2000 let's say, to rent uh, in Dublin. I mean, you'd have to be earning about 60000 if not 80000 a year, to afford rents of that size. Yeah, and, and you're looking in terms of the, uh, the actual tenant in the property paying their rent mm. from after-tax income. Mm. And then the same rent going across to the landlord and maybe 50% of it, if not more, Hmm. going back to the state. And they say it should be a third of your disposable income if you're renting. 
uh, yes, they, they say that there should be there should be uh, an affordability level with it. But I mean, the, the state is the, is is the person that's getting the most from all of this. The state is getting it from the the tenant before tax, obviously, uh, or, or from their after tax income, and then they're getting it from the landlord as well. Right. So I uh, I mean, the, the there was taxable in in 2016, which is the last figures I've got. The taxable income from the state was was around one hundred uh, one hundred and fifty. Five hundred, one hundred and fifty, one thousand five hundred fifty-six million. Sorry. Right. Okay. <laughs> so it's a, it's yeah. a huge amount. Yeah. Um, uh, That's uh, what one and a half billion, isn't it? It uh, is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and that was taxable yeah. from. Um, so, uh, the, the, so, the, so the state gets the tax on that, and I mean, it, at fifty percent, that's around uh, eight hundred million. Mm. So you're lo- you're looking at a huge. It, it, a huge. So you're uh, saying that what you collect in rent as a landlord, half of it goes to the government, is it? Um, yes. So if you're, you're getting your, your, your marginal your marginal rate PRSI USC, so it's a huge amount of taxation, and it, 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 with, it, it's not treated the same way as, as as other sectors are treated. It's not treated as a business; so it's treated as as uh, the revenue treated as unearned income, the same way that they tax shares. But there's no way that I mean running a rental property is is uh, I mean it is a business. Mm. It has to be. Uh, the legislation around it is is hugely complex and and very difficult, uh, and and you have to mature that the property is up to standard and you have to comply with all of the uh, legislation that's set around it. So, I mean, you have to repair maintenance, all of the things that are required in, a, in running a property, mm. letting, but and, you, and not but, falling foul but of you can claim ta- But you can claim tax deductions on those repairs. There's, yeah, on, on some things on, there's tax deductions yeah. and on some things there's not. So, mm. I, I mean... It, on, uh, on new furniture, on carpets uh, or over, life fittings. Over eight years. Yeah. Over mm. eight years. So uh, if somebody buys um, a, a bed um, the, um, and, and pays, pays 100 euros for it, mm. you'd be looking at 12.5% per year for that. So year one. So we, we have a cash flow situation in that situation as well. And it's what, by the time you get to the eight years, you've replaced that bed again. Mm. So, so, I mean, really what we should is, is, is where you have to pay for something outright. It should be offsetable in the year that, that's, that it's, it's done. Okay, uh, but if uh, you're able to take in twenty four thousand in a year like that, uh, which you could with a, a new tenant, uh, obviously according to these daft figures, uh, it's still hard uh, to uh, accept that it, it, it isn't worth your while. Well, it, well I mean, it's the figures show that people are leaving the sector, um, and when you take it that, that uh, we're having a huge amount of of the buy to lets coming into the sector, um, and we're still less tenancies mm. it shows that that there's even more leaving that is not reflected in that because the people coming in the new the big companies that are coming in now um and of course they can go out at market rent because they're new properties uh, they're in a they're in a different tax situation to to uh, individual landlords but two-thirds of all property provided for mm. tenants is provided by landlords with less than three properties okay We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Margaret McCormick, spokesperson for the Irish Property Owners Association. Now, it's Wednesday morning, meaning the local newspapers are available to you in your news agents. We have them here in the studio in front of us. And Maggie McGuire is here to tell us what's on the front pages. And uh, there's one story that dominates the minds and hearts and indeed uh, one of uh, the newspapers in uh, Drogheda this week. Absolutely. As you'd expect, this week's edition of the Drogheda Independent is, uh, is, is primarily taken up 
up with coverage of last week's hugely, hugely successful Fiat Cole. Many of the pages and the articles in the paper are dedicated to reliving the main highlights from the week, although there is one dud note in, in the coverage mm. in terms of uh, the dissatisfaction being expressed by the Drotter City Status Campaign Group. Um, they're heading out at the Taoiseach Leave Radcliffe for failing to meet with them during his visit to the, his flying visit to the town for the FLA, and they're saying that his reluctance to meet with the group suggests, that, uh, suggests to campaigners that the Taoiseach and his government have little interest in according Drogheda its proper status as Ireland's next city. Okay. Uh, what else are they reporting on apart from the FLA this week? Well, inside the paper, the news is not so good for local swimmers because um, they have an article covering the um, announcement of a bathing ban at a host of popular local beaches, including Bedistown, Leighton and Mornington because of sewage discharges. Apparently, bathers have been warned uh, the sea is too dangerous to swimming at, swim in and notices have been put up at the entrance of all the sites to warn visitors okay. just to take care and not enter the water. All right. Well, people listening to the programme yesterday may be uh, already aware of what's on the front page of uh, the Dundalk Democrat. Absolutely. Your interview with um, editor David Lynch yesterday um, went into great detail about the issue of parking fines in the, in the town and the fact that one third of all parking fines issued by the council go unpaid each year. And inside the paper as well, there's a lot of coverage um, of an interview with IFA Rural Development Chairman Matthew McGreehan, who's a regular um, guest on the programme. He's welcoming news of a public consultation process which has been announced. It's on the review of measures relating to uh, dog control in Ireland mm. and as I'm sure listeners will know Matthew's been ominous on many occasions talking about issues of dogs atta- dog attacks on Indeed. farms and you know he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's given quite distressing stories about yeah. you know um, issues the farmers have had to deal with and he's saying that Loud IFA are really welcoming the move they're calling on government to, he says they've been calling on government to take action on dog control for years and that they'll be making several submissions to the process in a bid to try and tackle the issue once and for all Alright let's go to Dundalk sometimes we hear of people in Drogheda saying they get everything in Dundalk. Uh, what are they saying in the Argus this week? Well, apparently there is a possibility of them getting something as well. We could see the old uh, Dundalk and Drogheda rivalry um, coming back to haunt us again because on the front page of the Argus, um, there's a lot of coverage of comments made by the Loud, County, uh, the Loud County Council Chief Executive, Joan Martin, where she was talking about Dundalk Town's potential to host the Flag Hill in years to come. Um, apparently, given all of its recent um, works done in the town, the rejuvenation of Clombrassel Street and other investments, and the fact that it's been kind of given as a contender before, mm. she says that the town has real potential to host it so we could see um, that rivalry sparking up again so I guess it's the case of watch this space. Okay, an, an interesting story then on security for older people. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of coverage of the new senior alert scheme in Loud. Apparently a total of 1,905 older people have availed of the service since 2015 in the county and 118 people have been approved for the scheme in the first six year, six months of this year. Uh, local councillor John McGann is talking about the issue and he's welcoming news of the increase in numbers and he says he's glad to see that so many people are willing to avail of the service because it gives them real peace of mind and security in their okay. homes. Well as we go into the autumn it's back to school thoughts for some and it uh, dominates uh, the front page of uh, the Dundalk Leader. Absolutely, local resident um, Brendan Moore has raised concerns about uh, safety concerns basically um, about a particular area in the town as the children head back to school um, this week and next week. He's saying that he's noticed an increase, a noticeable increase in traffic volumes um, from the main Pierce Park to the top of the hill area in, in McEntee Avenue mm. and he says this is because the route has been used by motorists to avoid traffic lights and roadworks in other areas of the town. So he's saying that given that the kids are going to be heading back to school and given that there's such mm. increased um, volumes of traffic, he's calling on the council to put safety measures in place before the kids return. OK, well, it's a back-to-school story in the Meath Chronicle, the front page of uh, the Chronicle this week. Not just back-to-school, but how do they get there? Well, this is it, and this is a story we actually covered earlier in the programme as well uh, this week with Hazel Thompson. She's a parent of one of the 12 students affected in the Monalvi area. And we spoke with Hazel and with 
local councillor Ashin Dempsey about the fact that um, 12 students in the area are facing major disruption to the start of their new school year because their school bus tickets have been revoked just days, days before the school term. Hazel you know, told us in great detail, told Orla in great, in great detail on Monday about the distress that this move is causing for parents and students and she's, she and other parents are calling on the Education Minister to step in and rectify the problem. Okay, well, uh, a young uh, Rathoth native has uh, given some inspiration to others, uh, I think, and that's reported on in the Chronicle this week. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. There's a great article um, this week by Anne Casey featuring a young Rath- um, Rathoth man called John Paul Conway. Um, basically, it goes into detail about how he fought a tough battle himself to regain his mental health and is now almost single-handedly running a charity to provide support and help to people at risk of suicide. He funded the Suicide No More in Ireland service eight years ago and it provides online and outreach support services and he's kind of been doing it and running it single-handedly with some help from friends for the past eight years. He's just saying that he vividly remembers the darkest parts of his own battle when he was dealing with his own illnesses and he just wants to do what he can to help. So it's a great article. Mm. People should have a read of it. Very commendable. Very good. Okay, thanks for that Maggie and uh, people may want uh, to give you a call about some of those stories, something else uh, they've been hearing or indeed if there's an issue that they'd like to raise with us on the programme because you'll be back in a a few minutes time with some of the comments that come to us if we do get any comments that is of course. (laughs) All right, our telephone Phone number is 1857 Michael Reed on LMFM. The Minister for Foreign Affairs and Thonish Simon Coveney will be in Helsinki, Prague, Warsaw and Copenhagen this week to talk about the consequences of Brexit. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson will be in Berlin and Paris as the Brexit deadline ticks down. If there's uh, no deal hard Brexit, one in five restaurants are likely to close, according to the Restaurants Association of Ireland. Adrian Cummins is its chief executive and he's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Adrian, and thanks for joining us. Uh, that's a, a pretty dire estimate. Uh, good morning and thank you, thank you for having me on the show. Yes, we've done an economic uh, research into this and our projections are that one in five restaurants would close in Ireland if it is a hard Brexit. And the reason for that is that uh, Sterling uh, is plummeting at the moment and the economic ramifications for the country will be dire from, predominantly outside of Dublin uh, from a rural, rural aspect. Uh, agriculture, as we all know, is in difficulty with prices uh, and the agricultural community, which feeds into the local economic community, will have a hugely negative effect. The biggest effect will be on the border regions. But, uh, mm. If there is a hard Brexit, there will be a hard border, as what has been claimed will happen. And uh, we we were saying that in the budget in October, that the tourism industry, which is which brought the economy, brought Ireland through the recession to a certain uh, uh, aspect, they created fifty thousand jobs. Mm. That rate of now 13.5%, which was increased last year, needs to return back down to 9%. Right, you're, you're pleading for help in that sense, but uh, what uh, would be the cause of uh, this uh, downturn? Uh, is it simply because of the currency and the value of sterling? Uh, two, two things. Uh, the downturn, there will be a shock to the economy. Every economist, even the Minister for Finance is saying that there are 100,000 jobs would be at, at risk with a hard Brexit. That means that 
in our industry, which is a, it's a disposable spend. People will cut back on eating out. So Irish uh, people won't be able to afford to go out as often as they would exactly. otherwise, whether that's uh, to the cinema or to a restaurant. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what mm. happened back in 2010 and 11. Mm. And in 2011, we got the reduced bath rate of 9%. So, you know, we're, it's a luxury item. It's a disposable spend that people will cut back. And that will hit our industry. And every town and village at the moment, the small and coffee shops, the restaurants that have been opened up in the last number of years, mm. they are going to be under severe pressure. The cost of doing business in Ireland is phenomenal uh, when you benchmark it against other, other, other countries. But I think the entire country needs to, be, needs to have a budget in, uh, in October that is Brexit ready. And we're, we're pitching that our industry needs to get get support, like any other sector as well. Well, we've been talking, I suppose, over the course of this month in particular about anybody who gets paid in sterling and if they were on holidays abroad uh, in euro currency countries uh, and how shocked they might have been at how little they were getting for their pound. Uh, so I take it that, that there's already been an impact. There has been, and I think uh, the research, the CSO figures coming out is not reflective of what's happening on the ground. Uh, I've done a, a fairly extensive tour of the country talking to business owners and part, they're part of our membership around the country. And the, the industry is quite flat at the moment and in decline in certain areas. And predominantly in the border region, I was up in Cavan uh, last week meeting business owners up there. Their cross-border traffic is down substantially. So if that's, that's before a hard Brexit, can you imagine what's going to happen when, if it is a hard Brexit? And I think that I think we're in for a difficult times if we can't get a solution solution that is that is helpful to the island of Ireland mm. in the future. And it's not just for our sector; it's for all sectors. But um, what we are pleading to first of all is our current minister for tourism to roll up the sleeves and start doing his job and representing us. Um, he hasn't done that to, to date. Uh, we're very disappointed in what he's done. Like any other uh, cabinet minister that has a portfolio. Uh, we want our tourism minister to get in there to the cabinet table and start looking for a substantial Brexit package for us. And uh, I think Ireland should be going to, to Europe for assistance, for not just for agriculture, but the tourism industry also. And is that on the basis that it happens, uh, and that it happens without a, a deal, or is it uh, because of what has already happened, because of uh, well, the uncertainty well, in the run-up to well, this? Well, both, Michael, because... Okay. You know, nobody knows what's going to happen on the 31st. So uncertainty uncertainty means that people don't spend. We don't have any certainty whatsoever. So that, that has, people are starting to save and not spend and not go out. And that's what, what businesses are telling us very clearly. That if we, and ever, it's, all, it's all leading up to uh, crash out at the moment. Nothing mm. says that they're not going to crash out. They're talking up that it will be. Okay. So we have to be in a position that on the, on the 1st of November, what happened? And we need to, our, our, our sector and all the economy needs to be prepared for this. Well, Boris has been saying he's going to do it with umph, as we've been hearing uh, in uh, the usual dramatic kind of language uh, that uh, the new Prime Minister uh, is uh, sort of known for using. Uh, but we leave it there for the moment, Adrian, and thank, thank you George, indeed for joining us. Adrian Cummins, Chief Executive of the Restaurants Association of Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Maggie McGuire is back with us with some of 
of uh, the calls and comments uh, that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Busy morning, Maggie? Yeah, it's been a busy morning, all right. There's been a lot of reaction to your opening piece of Thomas Byrne in relation to the public services card um, mm. issue. John was in contact to say he doesn't understand why Thomas was so reluctant to call on Minister Doherty to go. If the shoe was on the other foot, Fianna Gael would be calling for the heads of all of those involved in this debacle. The Minister has a responsibility to the voters to speak on the issue or at least to make a statement. Well, it's very clear. Uh, Thomas Byrne says there's a number of things he believes must be done, but if he was uh, to... Uh, put red lines up like that, it could actually cause a general election and uh, that's not a, a position that the party has taken, at least not as yet. OK. And on the same subject, Anne said she cannot believe that the government has overseen yet another large-scale waste of taxpayers' money. Um, surely when coming up with a scheme like this, the legal and data protection aspects of the programme should have been checked and double-checked before it was ever even rolled out. Why would the plough ahead with it before all the T's were crossed and the I's dotted? It makes no sense whatsoever. Well, you know, I suppose people People make mistakes, even uh, governments or government ministers or government departments make mistakes. Uh, but there is a, a, a little difference with this particular mistake because it wasn't just a mistake. It was a mistake that was made despite the warnings that were in line with the Data Commissioner's report. Uh, and indeed, the people who were making those warnings were told by the minister they were wrong. It mm-hmm. turns out the minister was wrong. And mm-hmm. therein lies a real problem for Regina Doherty, I think. Absolutely. Um, Tony, on the same subject, says um, Minister Doherty may not want to speak on this issue, but someone in government needs to open their mouth and explain to the public how they managed to make such a political mess up. It was the taxpayers' money that was used, so the public deserve answers. OK, well, those answers will come in time. They must come in time because uh, the government must respond, as we've been hearing, to uh, the report of uh, the Data Protection Commissioner and uh, the uh, issues that she wants to happen within the 21 days or an enforcement order would be put in place and then that could lead to legal proceedings, as we've been hearing, it would be completely bizarre. Mm-hmm. And on the same subject, um, Councillor Darren O'Rourke was in contact with us. He said... Um, Sinn Féin Councillor. Sinn Féin Councillor Darren O'Rourke was in contact with us, saying um, another absolutely incredible aspect of the public services card debacle is the fact that Minister Shane Ross was briefed by the Attorney General on the matter as far back as March 2018 and he acted on it. This resulted in the public service card not being required to get a driving licence which it never should have been in the first place. We know we knew very clearly then that the Ministers um, were aware of the illega- illegalities of the public services card 16 months ago and continued um, to allow it to be acted mm. on. Grounds for a minister to go, grounds for a government to go, mm. I certainly think so, says Councillor O'Rourke. Yeah, well, he, he's right. Uh, it was mandatory, not obligatory, but mandatory to get a driving licence. I don't know how you could have got one if it wasn't obligatory, but uh, then they uh, they dropped that completely uh, uh, on the advice uh, that Minister Ross got. Uh, let's go to a, a, another significant issue and again, in County Mead, one that uh, stems uh, from Virginia and County Cavan, as we've been hearing, Gardaí have arrested uh, a number of people and seized a significant uh, amount of cash following uh, that uh, raid on an ATM that uh, they thwarted last week. Stephen Breen, crime editor with The Irish Sun is on the line. A very good morning to you Stephen and thanks for joining us. It seems as though there must have been very good intelligence in relation to this gang and their planned activities. Yeah, there's no doubt, Michael, this is a very uh, significant development in an ongoing investigation being conducted uh, by Gardaí and indeed by their partners in the PSNI in the north. Um, It relates to the latest development relates to the attempted ATM theft in Virginia in Cabin last week, where three men uh, were arrested. So um, as the guard investigation continued in relation to that, they um, uh, made a number of arrests last night. And indeed, one of those arrested um, last night 
yesterday evening as an individual who was previously questioned last. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Last week, but because of lack of evidence or whatever... The direction was in the director of public prosecutions. There was no charge, but he, he has been rearrested. And uh, three men are now being held uh, in relation to the investigation into the ATM thefts. Um, one is being held in, in relation to um, running an organised crime group. So that's under gangland legislation and the other two men on money laundering. So it, indeed, as, as the investigation continues, uh, they've recovered more cash um, last night in two searches. One was recovered at the site where over €300,000 was recovered last uh, uh, mm. week. And we understand that another €100,000 uh, has been recovered and another cash seizure made in the Castlevania area. Right. Uh, and uh, what, about 400000 in Mead last night uh, as well as what was uh, seized in Castlevania, is it? You know, it's, it's 100000 300000 in Mead last week. Yes, uh, OK. And then another one hundred at then. Yes, no, last, and then, okay. I believe over uh, 10,000 in another search in, in Castle Blaney. So it, it is ongoing. All right. Uh, and I suppose uh, the Gardaí are looking at uh, the uh, idea, uh, at least uh, they must be working off uh, the theory that uh, these people could have been involved in some other raids uh, rather than the one in Virginia alone, because there's been over 30 raids north and south of the border, hasn't there? Yes, but they're looking at this in this in relation to this particular guy. You know, the, the investigation has been going on for a number of months, where they have targeted um, suspects associated with this, this criminal organisation, and it relates to uh, at least four thefts, ATM thefts, going back to last Christmas, 
think there was one in, in, in Bally Bay, you have the two uh, in Kells and another one in Monaghan. So they are the main suspects for this. And once the Gardaí identified uh, these individuals, which includes mm. you know three members of the one family, uh, when they identified these individuals, a major investigation was launched. And as a result of that, you know, the arrests were made uh, last week in Virginia during an attempted raid of a, an ATM machine there. And it was only when they conducted further searches afterwards when they recovered the cash. So you have Gardaí from Cavan, from Monaghan, from, from Kells, but also the, you had the, the PSNI search of premises uh, as well in, in South Armagh related to this. So this is a guy suspected of involvement in cross-border crime, the stolen car industry. But I think it's a reassuring message as well to show, and especially to those people who are living along the border, you know, that the Gardaí are continuing to, to crack down on, on organised crime because... You know, people often say, you know, they're stealing ATMs. You know, this mm. this is a victimless crime, but it's not because you know you have increased insurance costs, you have threats to local jobs and businesses. So, and the recover this amount of cash which has been seized is, is quite significant. And the danger of the whole thing. I mean, when that sort of activity is taking place uh, in uh, your neighbourhood, it's a, a dangerous situation uh, to be close to. But uh, as well as that. People in rural areas are complaining that banks are closing down and if the ATMs are gone, uh, because if they keep robbing the ATMs, they won't be able to keep putting them and back in place and replacing them. So uh, it could be a very difficult situation. Uh, but are, are the Gardaí working off uh, the theory that uh, there were several gangs involved in uh, stealing these ATMs over the period of the last few months? Or is there the possibility that one gang was responsible for them all? Well, in relation to the, the, the investigation into Virginia last week, you know, the, the, the guardies suspect that this particular gang who they have targeted were responsible for at least four or five of the ATM thefts that we've seen over the last year. But you do have other criminal gangs there, and indeed, remember the PSNI saying mm. that there was their, their suspicion that you may have copycat criminal gangs who, who were copying the modus operandi of, of this particular gang. So, but the fact that they've been linked to a, a, at least four possibly five ATM thefts where a lot of money was stolen shows the extent of their involvement in, in organised crime. And, you know, it's, it's not just this uh, component of organised crime that they're involved in. You have the stolen motor trade, you have the stolen mm. plant machinery, uh, stolen car thefts, uh, uh, burglaries as well. So, like, they are a well-organised criminal gang which straddles, uh, you know, both sides mm. of the border. And, and I think, you know, with Brexit looming as well, if we have a known thing, Brexit too, you know, there's an issue of security there, but you, you do have this cooperation, this increased cooperation between the Gardaí and um, the, the PSNI in, in tackling uh, organised crime. So yeah. I, I think it is a reassuring message that, that these criminal gangs operating on both sides of the border will be targeted. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I suppose uh, they did make it look easy on occasion. And uh, if it looked easy, then there was uh, the prospect of copycats uh, if uh, they manage uh, to crack down on this and uh, to recover the cash that was involved. Uh, perhaps it'll deter copycats. Stephen, we leave it there for the moment, though, and thank you indeed for joining us, as always. Stephen Breen crime editor with the Irish Sun on that breaking story of three arrests and uh, the seizure of cash following on from uh, that ATM raid or the attempted raid which was thwarted by Gardaí in Virginia in Cavan last week.
Now let's go back to the phones. Maggie, you have some more comments there. Um, I'm going back to the issue of the public services card okay, um, yeah. and mm. says it's time for Regina Darty to go. She's hiding her head in the sand on this mess and she can't be allowed to do that. If someone in Fianna Fáil or Sinn Féin had behaved in the same way, she'd be leading the charge for them to step down. Mm. So what's good for the goose is good for the gander. She well, says. you know, the Minister said, look, you know, it's a big report, uh, 177 pages or something along those lines. Uh, we need time uh, to read it, we need mm. time to consider it uh, and we need time to consider our response and I suppose uh, a lot of that is reasonable considering uh, the significance of uh, the findings uh, and indeed uh, how serious the findings are that the state has acted illegally in the way that it has acted mm. illegally but it would seem on the other hand um, that the findings were given in an interim report to the Minister and indeed to Minister Pascal Donoghue a year ago. This is it, and mm. uh, that's why people are asking questions, mm. I suppose. And I'll just finish up, actually, with a, a comment about an issue that we're going to be talking about later in the programme. It's in relation to that um, horrible attack on the young girl in Dublin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, Mary was in contact about it. She was really upset, actually, on the phone, mm. and she was saying she was disgusted and gutted to hear about the racist attack on the, um, the young teenage girl in Dublin. What kind of a world are we living in at all that our young people can't even walk the streets without mm. being attacked for their religious beliefs? To think that someone would film it and put it online makes the whole thing even more upsetting and she says all of those involved in the attack and those who posted it online should be prosecuted. Well that's uh, very very true yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think the Gardaí are working off uh, the theory that it wasn't racially motivated uh, but they haven't uh, said that definitively as yet mm. uh, but it was horrible nonetheless. Absolutely. Alright thanks for that Maggie, thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said as always we'd love to hear from you our telephone number 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now the Joint Oireachtas Committee on Communications has finalised its report into the National Broadband Plan. Let's talk about this with Timmy Dooley, who's Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on communications and on the line. And a very good morning to you, Timmy Dooley. Thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, You've uh, recommended uh, in your report uh, that uh, this would be kept in public ownership, but this doesn't have the support of Fine Gael. So what weight or what teeth does your report have? Well, I suppose the benefit of the report, uh, it, it comes after three months of public hearings where all the stakeholders, different experts were brought before the committee to set out uh, what they thought was right and what they thought was wrong with the committee. So there's a significant amount of information now on the public record that wasn't there heretofore. Um, I think the important, for me anyway, the important takeaways from, from, from this report is that whilst in the first instance, the process undertaken by the government uh, to carry out a tender process was well-meaning from the start, uh, but it failed ultimately when a couple of the main companies pulled out and you were left with just one bidder towards the end that didn't really have a presence uh, or experience here in this country. Um, and there was no competitive tension, so there's no way that the taxpayer uh, is guaranteed that they're getting value for money. And you won the support of the majority of the members of the committee for a proposal that you made, which was to pull back from all of this for three months and to review the whole process independently. Yeah, which which was something that we attempted to do in the Dáil and got a vote through the Dáil previously, almost three years ago, which is effectively calling on the government to bring in an independent external uh, expert to look at the contract process effectively establish, if it's possible, uh, to do this thing differently. The one thing the committee was very clear on, we absolutely need to get high-speed broadband out to the rural areas as quickly as possible with good value to the taxpayer. 
And it's not clear that the process that's underway will do that. It's been going on now year after year after year, nothing happening, delay after delay after delay. And the concern that I have is that even if the contract is signed with this company, Granahan McCourt, we'll still see further delays and further delays because there's a, the company concerned does not have the expertise or the experience. What we're trying to establish, is it possible under a direct award to appoint the ESB to do this? Is it possible under a universal service obligation model to hire AIR to do this? And that's where we need to get the independent expert to come on board from an international reputation, understanding EU law thoroughly and knowing the boundaries and the parameters that can be achieved. But my concern, the concern of the committee generally, with the mm. exception of Fine Gael, uh, is that if we continue to follow the same path that the government has been following for the last five or six years, that within maybe the next five or six years, we'll still see no broadband connected to these people. And that's the biggest concern that we all have. And Fine Gael says that what you're proposing will result in putting back the plan by five years. But they haven't been able to stand that up. There's no evidence to suggest that that's the case. And the reality is, three years ago, uh, in 2016, when Fianna Fáil were really concerned about the way in which the broadband process was going, we brought an amendment to a motion that was already in the Dáil, and we were excoriated by Fine Gael at the time, saying that if, we were, if the, government, the Fine Gael government were mm. to accept our motion, which was to retain the asset in state ownership, if that was to happen, it would delay by another six months the starting of the project, because the then minister expected to be signing a contract uh, at the ploughing championships, uh, you know, to give a, uh, this, this, this notion to rural Ireland that he cared, or that the government cared. Three years on, we're facing into another uh, ploughing championship, and no deal has been signed. Uh, and there has been, you know, problem after problem. And, and at that stage, the estimated contribution of the taxpayer was half a billion, 500 uh, million. Um, it's now run to close on three billion. Now that is an enormous, an enormous overrun. That's an additional two billion at a time. Quite frankly, when the state doesn't have that kind of money available to it, and mm. we've got to find ways to deliver it more quickly and more cheaply. Okay. And Air came before the committee, and they look. Let's be honest. Air mm. have their own uh, commercial interest at heart here, but they're also a, a, a very credible company, and they said the same service. Uh, that's on offer here through this national broadband plan, they could deliver under their model of delivery, which they're delivering on a daily basis throughout uh, other tracks of the, the, the more mm-hmm. urban areas. Mm-hmm. They could deliver it for, for a billion or less. That, in my view, requires a very close analysis. They suggested that they could do that if there was a universal service obligation placed on them. Uh, and that's why I believe that needs to be teased through with the expertise mm. Well, that's it, a, a close analysis by those who have the expertise. Yes, and I'm suggesting that that, mm. that job of work, to, to do that analysis, can be done within three months. Because the credibility of that claim has been questioned. Uh, I, know it has. Mm-hmm. I, I know it has, but it has, been, it, 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 it has been questioned in a rather bizarre way in the Taoiseach on a number of occasions, suggesting that what AIR was offering was different. The truth of it is, when the detailed questioning happened, AIR said, we will deliver exactly the same service, the same speeds, at the same end cost to the user. Of course, what the Taoiseach was referring to at the time was that it wouldn't have the layers of bureaucracy uh, that the state want to put in place through departmental mm. oversight, etc., uh, which is going to cost, uh, estimated, 
at an extra two billion. There's well, no I suppose benefit to the I suppose in the long run. few of us have the expertise to uh, assess the credibility of what Air is saying, but I think all of us would prefer for it to cost one billion rather than three billion. Given that, and I think, and I think, the, you know, we all have issues from time mm. to time with our phone lines, and we're often concerned about the, you know, the, the delays that happen within Air, and you know, maybe maybe not getting back to people. But I think there's a lot better understanding and a much greater level of credibility in a company like Air or the ESB under the CSIRO brand with Vodafone than there would be with Granahan McCourt, a private investment fund based out of Boston, mm. uh, which is just uh, a, a effectively a venture capital company um, taking a punt here. They're not and don't have uh, a key uh, you know, vehicle, telecom vehicle that they mm. can deliver through. Yes, they're building expertise and they're hiring people. Um, but, but, but with the likes of ESB and Vodafone or Air, you have companies that are well-established who have, you know, to use that old cliche, have boots on the ground rolling out fibre every day of the week, have knowledge, experience, expertise in project management. When they say it'll take three years, then you're fairly confident that, that they know the task involved. Mm. Um, you know, Grant and McCourt were pitching this as a three-year project, and now it looks like it's going to be a 10-year project. And whether it's Granham McCourt or Air or ESB, uh, you've also questioned the oversight of the plan. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the concerns about the, the tendering process, because whilst, as I said at the outset, it was probably well-intentioned to follow what they called a gap-funded model, which was to offer this opportunity to the commercial sector, um, and then that the government, through the taxpayer, uh, would fund whatever the gap was between profitability and cost. Uh, and whilst that looked like the best model at the start, it became very clear when AIR uh, and CSIRO pulled out that it wasn't working. And I think the government's oversight at that point really failed uh, two and a, 18 months ago, two years ago. The government mm. should have seen the problem, have brought in the external review at that stage, advi- taken advice as to what the best way to proceed. And I think in that instance... We wouldn't be left with just one company bidding at the end. You know, a company bidding against itself um, it does not provide the kind of competitive tension that's necessary to wish, ensure the taxpayer that they're getting good value for money because it is clear mm. over the course of the discussions that took place with Grenoble and McCourt uh, being the sole bidder that about four, uh, an additional $400 million of cost was added to the project uh, in relation to certain contingency uh, funds that were, were available in the event of certain things happening or not happening uh, in the course of the rollout uh, of the plan. So there's, there's, there's issues there that, that I think give rise mm. to real concerns from a, from, okay. from a value for money. And those issues are highlighted in your report, and I suppose any report from an Oireachtas committee has to be given some consideration. Your report is to be published or officially launched next Tuesday, as the case may be. It's gone to the department, and they're expected to make a statement in relation to it after that. But can you explain to us... What do you expect to happen from here? Because I think the government has said it plans to finalise the contracts with Granham Court in the autumn. Uh, this is an Oireachtas Committee report, but it's not a consensus report because you've members of Fine Gael who have very openly said that they oppose what's being said and that they're worried that it would put it back five years. And a spokesperson for the government said that it would add years of delay to the process. Yeah, and that, as I said, is the standard defence mm. of, of government. Any time that I have raised issues over the last three years in relation to this or any improvements that I, on behalf of Fianna Fáil, saw uh, as being helpful, the, the counter from government was always, we're about to sign a contract, 
that'll delay that will create further delay i mean that's a little bit rich uh, and it's been it's 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 an issue of crying wolf on too many occasions because quite frankly there has been delay after delay going back to 2012 in relation to the next steps now committee has 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 agreed the report it will be printed over the next number of days published on 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 tuesday I assume a copy has already gone to government and will be laid before the Oireachtas. It's really up now to the Cabinet to make a decision whether to take on board the recommendations of the committee or ignore them, as this government consistently does. There has been numerous votes in the Dáil on, on private members' mm. business, private members' motions, and indeed reports of committees, which are flatly ignored by government in the decisions that they take. And, of course, that is their entitlement. The government, uh, in terms of its own capacity, does not have to take the will of the doll or the will of a committee uh, into consideration in making decisions like this. Um, however, I do think uh, that from a public perspective point of view, just you know, doing it on the basis that they're promising broadband and that the 542,000 locations are somehow going to be you know, grateful because the government have signed a contract when it's, there are clear issues about the capacity of the company to deliver and the significant cost overrun that's inherent in it, I think the public would rightly expect, if it was possible, to establish, is there a better way to do this that gives better value for money and gets this thing rolled out more quickly? And, and, and that would be my view, that that, that that should happen. However, if the government ignore that, well then, I think so be it. And it will be a matter for the public in the not-too-distant future to cast their judgment uh, on Fine Gael's management of this large-scale infrastructure project and the massive overrun and, in my view, the massive waste of taxpayers' money uh, to take that alongside what's happening with some of the road projects, particularly the Dunkettle Roundabout down in Cork and the massive overrun there, massive overrun in the Children's Hospital, the significant overrun in elderly care units uh, in terms of bringing them up to uh, HICWA standards, all at a time. Mm. When we're facing Brexit and, and, and in the area, the franchise area that you cover, there are many companies exporting uh, across the border and into the UK on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And of course, you'll have to balance that uh, as uh, one of uh, the electorate against what the government is saying, which is uh, they'll deliver it now rather than five years from now or whatever the case may be. Absolutely. And I mean, they'll make that point. But I don't believe and, and I don't think there are too many on the committee that believes that there would be anything like a, a, a five-year delay. That seems crazy, and I think the basis of it is if you were to go back again and start an entirely new tendering process. Mm. But don't forget that the bulk of the work in terms of mapping the area, uh, establishing... Uh, well, that, that is the argument that the chairman was making, wasn't it? Martin Hayden said uh, that you chairman can't... Gale, but I mean, the, you, the, the, the sad reality mm-hmm. of it is that he, he, did, he doesn't sit on the committee. He's the chairman of Fine Gael, mm-hmm. so it was a political point that somehow this was going to take five years mm. because it took them five years to get the last tender through, mm. uh, which was the wrong tender. Quite you frankly. said you can't cancel it without going back to the beginning. No, I, I disagree with that. There are other options, either through the universal service obligation model or a direct award model. There is no need to go back and start trying to map the country again. A lot of the work, the detailed work, was done in bringing in their own consultants advising them how to create a tender. We now know what not to do. Mm. So that has been, that there's a benefit to the work already there. Okay. We, know, we know where these homes and premises, so there's no need to go back and do all that mapping. That's just a smokescreen behind which Fine Gael want to hide their incompetence and their inability to deliver a large-scale infrastructure project, which was first mooted on their watch back in 2012. So all the mistakes, all the issues that have arisen, and all the failures have happened on their watch 
for once they can't start blaming previous governments. All right, well, we'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us today. Timmy Dooley, Fianna Fáil TD, and his party spokesperson on communications. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the beef crisis talks ended yesterday. There has uh, been some resolution, and let's find out what happened. Paul Mooney, news correspondent with the Irish Farmers Journal, is on the line. A very good morning to you, Paul, and many thanks uh, for joining us, because I, I take it that because you were covering uh, the talks yesterday, like uh, the stakeholders, you had a, a very long day. They went on for some 14 hours, and indeed, uh, overall, the talks have taken place over 40 hours, uh, and whilst there has been some resolution, it's not clear yet, is it, that this conflict has been resolved? Michael, good morning. Uh, yes, the talks were long and tense and everybody was very tired when they came out last night and I suppose that's a very traditional thing in any of these negotiations. Um, if you, you've asked the key question, Michael, uh, is, is what's delivered enough to satisfy farmers? Uh, will it lift price and is it enough to ensure that there'll be no uh, you know, a resumption of protests at the factory gates? We won't know those things until the coming days, uh, Michael. Uh, we can say, of course, that uh, certainly the farm organisations were all quite negative when they came out last night and maybe this morning as well. Uh, and the reason being that they, what, what the talks will not uh, increase beef prices this week in themselves. Maybe the markets uh, will increase beef prices over coming weeks, but that's a different matter. Uh, but then it had been made quite clear that the, the talks, uh, Michael would not discuss beef prices anyway for competition reasons. Mm. So, so, so uh, yes, farmers who are selling cattle uh, at this moment and this week uh, continue to feel the pain, Michael, of low beef prices, and they won't be happy. Uh, they would have uh, hoped uh, that the uh, talks would uh, lead to an increase in prices. Uh, and was much achieved yesterday uh, because uh, some of uh, the resolutions seem to have uh, been reached during previous uh, talks, and we were speaking with Edmund Phelan of the ICSA before he went into the talks yesterday, saying that thus far it had been a waste of time. Well, no, Mike, it's a very good question, and you're, you're getting down to a glass half full, glass empty uh, type mm. uh, question now, but uh, some items were agreed yesterday, and specifically details, uh, further details about uh, uh, grading of cattle, and what they actually mean is that an extra 200, uh, approximately an extra 200,000 cattle each year will qualify for the quality bonus of 12 cents per kilo. Uh, so, so that will be welcome. That, 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 uh, presuming this will go ahead now as agreed last night, this will be a, you know, it, it will be a worthwhile uh, outcome. That particular one. There was a smaller um, 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 issue then, on which there was some progress, Michael, which were the rules around cattle movements again to qualify for this bonus. So the animals, uh, instead of having to spend seventy uh, the, la- the last seventy days before sale. On a, on a quality short farm, that's reduced to 60 days before sale. Uh, there are some conditions attached to that. You know, it's uh, farmers were arguing arguing yesterday and last night, Michael, in this one, because it's about flexibility for a farmer who's going to sell his cattle. He wants flexibility or she wants flexibility so they can try and get the best price they can. They feel very hemmed in, very restricted by these uh, these uh, rules around quality assurance and they feel they're anti-competitive. You know, so, so there were numbers, there were about four issues being discussed at length, Michael, last night. Mm. There was movement, uh, if my math is right, in two of them. There was no movement, for example, on the age limit of 30 months for animals to qualify. And, and again, that's a disappointment uh, for farmers. Uh, their opposition, you know, the, the, the meat factories and indeed the Department of the Minister, for example, Michael would say that uh, it is a requirement of customers of the marketplace. So therefore, it's not something the factories were in a position to yield on. The farmers won't agree. 
Michael, but that's that's mm-hmm. what was being said to them last night. Uh, and I suppose uh, that uh, it all comes down to whether uh, it's going to make uh, sufficient difference to uh, the cost of production. Uh, and if farmers will continue to have to produce uh, uh, under the cost of production if what they're getting, uh, because they're talking about a, a survival line uh, and they're short at least 50 cent a kilo, isn't it? Yes, they are. And, and look, uh, I wouldn't be very optimistic for cattle prices now in the next week or two, Michael. Uh, the talks, uh, you know, these 40 hours of talks are not going to uh, give an increase uh, in cattle prices, as we've, as we've said. So that's that's where, you know, that's where there's disappointment there in the farm organisations. Uh, the measures, the measures, there's a longish list, Michael, of mm. measures agreed over the 40 hours, including a few last night. Uh, they're kind of long-term uh, issues, Michael. Uh, um, you know, some of them are worthwhile. I would say, you know, um, I'd make the point nearly that any time farmers have gone to the factory gates, they've got some, uh, they've won some um, um, issues for themselves, and this is no different. They they won issues on on, on uh, uh, this time, um, you know. So a review of the grid, for example, this famous pricing grid, uh, you know, with the price yeah. uh, determined by the quality of the carcass and the quality of the animal, uh, that's to be reviewed by the end of September by Chaldesk, and uh, you know, so so that's that's. Uh, coming in, in, in a number of weeks uh, mm. as well uh, the quality bonus for these extra up to 200,000 animals per year. That's okay, but while they can agree uh, how prices are, are reached, they can't agree the prices themselves, as you say, because of the competition laws, Paul, but uh, no matter what happens, uh, farmers just cannot continue to produce at a loss. No, they can't, of course, uh, Michael, absolutely. They're reaching into their their single farm payment there that they get each year from Brussels, you know. Mm. Um, and, and uh, you know, for, uh, what, what we're seeing at the moment really is a Brexit effect, Michael, uh, not helped by Merck's ordeal. And uh, these things are cyclical. Uh, you know, far, farmers, they're, they're caught in, a, in a, as you know, in a lengthy long-term production system and can't make changes very quickly, very easily, you know. Um, so so uh, certainly farmers will be hoping maybe that the markets can uh, um, turn around and they'll be hoping for compensation, as promised, uh, from the EU Commission for this Brexit disruption. Okay. Michael, it's very much an evolving story uh, and there'll be a lot of fine details to be worked out. Uh, obviously, we'll have a lot of details tomorrow mm. in the journal, further details, I hope, and you'll be them and, and uh, so we'll see how things emerge over coming weeks. Okay, thank you indeed. Paul Mooney, uh, news correspondent for the Irish Farmers Journal, as he says, a lot of the concern is about Brexit, if Brexit will happen. Uh, and uh, there is a big question over as to whether Brexit will happen or if members of the Conservative Party, Boris Johnson's political party in the United Kingdom, will prevented from happening. And this is a subject that was discussed on BBC this morning, and this, I think, you'll find remarkable listening. This is Minister Robert Jennings speaking to Nick Robinson on the Today programme. He's a recently appointed minister, and he's been saying that he's been working hard on Brexit and delivering Brexit since he was made a minister. I've been working every day to ensure that the UK is better prepared to leave on the 31st of October. I you, think the, uh, EU, the EU would be ill-advised to underestimate our determination to do so, and, or the uh, degree of preparedness uh, that we are, we are undertaking at the moment. And some of your colleagues now in, in, in the Conservative Party are openly considering voting to bring down the government. Do you really think that you would be able to put your party back together again if we leave without a deal? 
Well, I hope that all of my Conservative colleagues, and you, you, you do say that I voted to remain, I have good relations, I think, on all sides of our party, I hope that they will think very carefully uh, in the coming days about how they want to proceed. For me, it has always been absolutely critical that we deliver on the outcome of the referendum and that the country can move forward now with renewed confidence after the 31st of October and not keep going round and round in circles. That's very debilitating. It's damaging for the economy and it's bad for public trust yeah, and faith it, in but our it, politics. But, but of course and it's so bad delivering Brexit on that date, I think, is absolutely essential for the country and obviously for the Conservative Party. And I would also urge my Conservative colleagues to think carefully about uh, putting Jeremy Corbyn into number 10. All right, but let's talk about... there is no Brexit outcome which is of greater concern than a government led by Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonald, potentially propped up by Nicola Sturgeon. A final word about uh, Boris Johnson rather than Jeremy Corbyn. He accused those who think they can block Brexit in Parliament of a terrible kind of collaboration with the European Union. Do you agree with that? Collaboration, well, that's a heck of a word the, to use, The isn't point it? that the Prime Minister was making, which I 100% agree do, with, was no, Do you that agree with what we, he said? Do you agree is, with the word collaboration? Straightforward I, question. I, I agree with the Prime Minister because... On it that is word. In our, You'd use is, that word yourself, It is not you? in the national interest at this moment in time to undermine the Prime Minister's hand as we enter this critical right. period of So your colleagues in the Conservative Party are collaborators with the European Union. Is that what you're saying? What I'm saying is that... All members of Parliament, particularly Conservatives, need to support the Prime Minister to help us in these final preparations. Very different from no the question I asked on the 31st you. As, as, as you are very well aware, that to, was not the question ensure, I asked you. Well, you're putting words into my no, mouth. No, I'm not putting but, words into my mouth. I'm I've asking you whether believed, you agree with your I've Prime Minister be- and the leader always, of your party. That's uh, a perfectly straightforward. I, and I believe I'm explaining the Prime Minister's words, which I 100% support. I've mm. always believed that you have to give the Prime Minister the strongest hand he can have in these negotiations. And that means ensuring that we leave on the 31st of October. That is the only route to a real renegotiation in the weeks ahead. That sounds like a Conservative Party at odds with itself. And Minister Robert Janik speaking with Nick Robinson on BBC Radio 4's Today programme earlier today. Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. Now let's talk about uh, this appalling incident in Dundrum which was videoed and put on the internet. A Muslim teenager had a hijab she was wearing forcibly removed from her head. She was punched and then pelted with eggs. We're joined by Lorraine O'Connor who's uh, the chairperson of uh, the Muslim Sisters of Era. A very good morning to Lorraine and uh, thanks for joining us as we've been hearing uh, the there have been similar incidents. Indeed, your daughters have fallen victim of racial abuse and very recently. Uh, what do you know of what happened in Dundrum? Hi, good morning. Well, not much other than what's going around um, at the moment. As you see, it's all viral. It's out there. We do know one of the young girls. Um, she comes from a very, very good background. Beautiful family, well-mannered. She's actually a friend of one of my daughters and um, a lovely young girl. Mm. Um, at the moment, um, the, the picture is, is it's only coming out. Um, to, to see that video, and I'm sure like any other mother, we, we young teenage daughters relate to that kind of um, attack. It kind of had a very, very bad effect on us. Um, looking at that and relating, as I said, to the young girls and knowing that um, my own daughters 
you know, easily go up to Dundrum, mm. um, are out walking around, very visible in hijabs. Mm. And um, just looking at it kind of brought it really home to your own, you know, your own daughters, mm. your own home. And it just had such a bad effect on all of us. Does and, wearing, and a, does wearing a, a hijab tend to, to provoke a negative reaction? You know, you know, there's a minority and there's a majority. The majority of people in Ireland are live and let live and embrace every walk of race, religion, diversity and so forth and so on. Um, but there's a small minority, obviously, that fear that the hijab should be banned. It should be um, released from women. Women shouldn't be forcibly made to wear it. So there's a lot of misconceptions and perceptions about the hijab. But Again, I'm going to come back. It's a minority of people in Ireland are live and let live. Sorry, the majority of people in Ireland are live and let live. But there is pockets of Islamophobia there, and there's small pockets. But it's are we going to tackle them now before they rise any further? Or are we going to let it rise till it then becomes unsafe for any of your daughters or yourself, like myself, to walk out in Irish society wearing a hijab? How do we tackle it? Well, I mean, there needs to be some kind of a hate crime brought in as well. Um, I know the organisation that we run, the Muslim Sisters of Aero, we work an awful lot on breaking down stereotype and um, promoting dialogue, promoting diversity, um, intercultural. You know, we do a lot of work with different NGOs. We visit schools at the moment. We're launching a campaign in December, sorry, September. And the campaign is called This Is Me, where we are going into TY students and opening the floor to dialogue and talking talking to them about Muslim women and the mm. work that we do and our youth and so forth and so on. And it's just given yeah. that floor to, you know, dialogue for the youth. Yeah, and, and we don't know if uh, this was a racially motivated incident. Most likely it wasn't that these were just... Uh, uh, Yumfl is out of control. It seems they were on a, a spate of... Uh, criminal-related incidents, uh, and Gardy seemed to have identified nine young fellows who were involved in this, uh, but mm-hmm. uh, I suppose it does raise well, the question, and it has been uh, a question that's been raised, but maybe tell us what a, a hijab is or, or why Muslim women wear it, because, uh, I mean, there's nothing unusual about women wearing a headscarf in, in this country either, Lorraine. I mean, for years, up until very I'm recently... I'm sure my own women, mother used yeah, to wear it when I was a kid. Yeah. You wouldn't mm-hmm. go outside the door without putting her scarf on yeah. the head. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a young a Muslim woman... Um, it's, it's, it's an act of faith. It's between her and her creator. It's her choice. Mm. Um, and it's part of our religion and to wear her headscarf. Now, again, I'm going to go down to, it boils down to choice. Whether a girl chooses to wear her headscarf mm. in her faith um, is totally up to her. Nothing should ever be forced to wear on any woman. Mm. So, I mean, myself, I wear it. My three daughters wear it. But I have an older daughter who doesn't wear it. But should I disrespect her or look down on her as any different to us? No, never. This is her path, her choice to wear her scarf. Mm. And I think there's so many misconceptions about the hijab. It's the most controversial piece of cloth in the whole of Europe. It really is. And banning it and and so forth and so on. Mm. And it it just isn't right. It's it's about choice. And if Mm. a woman chooses to put a headscarf on her head, it should be of no difference to anybody. She's not disturbing anybody. She's not doing anything to anybody, as our own mothers did Mm. less than 30 years ago. 
Well, that's the thing, I suppose, when you think of it in that context, it's mad to think of why people are so fearful of it. Is is that it, that people are afraid, that it sends out a a signal to people that makes them feel afraid? Do you know what? Look, I can only say that I'm I'm a revert to Islam. I'm originally from Kulak. I became a Muslim in 2005. I kind of lived both sides of the tracks, and I'm always saying it's a blessing. Because growing up here in the 80s, I would have looked at um, the news, Mm. and I would have seen media's perception of what Islam was and what was going on, and I would have looked at it as going, oh my God, these people are crazy, these women covering up, so forth and so on, because you're programmed into thinking that, not looking at actually what is the real Islam, what it is about, why these women cover, why they choose to cover, mm. why they choose to have modesty in their life, and so forth and so on. So, you know, I think it's media's perception has a, has a big role to play in it, that incites fear in to people and I suppose it's fear of the unknown and that's why Muslim Sisters of Era does the work that we do to break down this misconception and to break down the stereotyping we run a soup run every Friday night outside the GPO and we have run it for the past three years and if you go down there on a Friday night outside the GPO and you see about 20 women wearing hijab and you could have 10 of our women who don't wear hijab they're no less different they're just women Mm. down there providing a super and providing empathy and love you've got huge diversity going on down there and you've got huge um, combat and stereotyping and public discourse and it's, yeah. it's a beautiful action that's done down there and empathy that's done every Friday night and love and the homeless smell after three years uh, actually look forward to us we've got great friends down yeah. there um, wait for us every Friday night help us take the stuff out of the car and that after three years is just amazing Oh absolutely and fair play to you I mean what else can be said I mean that's uh, one of uh, the most embarrassing things in the country that we've uh, created a society where people have to sleep on the streets or in hotels. Um, tell us about yeah. what happened. What, tell us what happened uh, to your daughters on the bus. Well, my daughters about three weeks ago had been in Dunleary. Um, it was lovely. The weather was lovely. They re- went out with a couple of their friends. So there was about five of them. Um, they were waiting on the 75 bus and one bus didn't come. So the next bus then came and then there, obviously there was a crowd of people because one bus was missing. And there was a man on the bus who, he was intoxicated. And um, the four, three of the girls were speaking Arabic and they were just speaking Arabic and they were standing. They have video footage of this. They were standing on the bus because there was no seats. Um, he then starts shouting at them, who the hell do you think you are talking about me? You're nothing but dirt. You're scum of the earth. He went up into my daughter and spat in her face. He told her, you don't belong in this country. Um, I'm going to, um, I'll get a knife. I'll stab you. I'll have you done. It just, they were publicly humiliated for about 15 minutes. Mm. And you grew up in Kulak, so I take it your daughters oh, are Irish yeah. anyway. Yeah. No, but my, it, but that's irrelevant whether oh, they're Irish that. or not. Yeah. No, no one should that. be no, no, should no. be ridiculed yeah. to that. And um, whether you're Irish or not, or your race, your colour, your skin, yeah. nobody you're, should. You're a human being, absolutely. Yeah. And this is it. I mean, you know, but it was so, like, the girls, when I got them eventually, the guards were called, they did arrest them, and they charged them with drunken, uh, disorderly behaviour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's irrelevant. You know, the damage has been done for a while. The girls mm-hmm. were a bit uneasy about going on the bus. And look, when I went to collect them, and I found my 18-year-old and 20-year-old, I mean, they're 
old girls, they're women, mm, mm. and they were physically, emotionally uh, in a be- in a state from. Well, of course, there anybody would be. But, you yeah, know, and yeah, the fact yeah, that nobody yeah. helped them. Yeah, and the fact that it was race motivated means there should be legislation exactly. for race uh, crime, hate crime, hate crime. Exactly. Okay. All right, and that's right. what we're going to try and work on, Muslim Sisters of Error, to try and do some kind of a bill at the moment. But okay. it's only in the 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 like thought process at the moment. All right, Lorena, I've run over time. I have to leave it there, but thank you no for problem. speaking to us this morning. Lorena O'Connor, chairperson of the Muslim Sisters All There, brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie 